0: If you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 44, uh, as we continue to walk through the book of Genesis and God's Word this Lord's Day. As you turn there, let me remind you of some things that we have seen as we have studied uh, this portion of the book of Genesis. Uh, Hopefully, if you've been with us, you've identified uh, some some things we can see. For example, uh, we see how Joseph is a picture of Jesus. We've talked about that in some of the sermons, how you really have this forerunner of Christ and this picture of Christ and one who is betrayed by his brothers, one who is wrongly accused, one who suffers greatly, and one who ultimately, because of his faithfulness, many others are saved. It is through God using Joseph that not only the nation of Egypt, but those surrounding areas in the land of Canaan and God's people there, uh, Israel's family, are ultimately saved. It's it's a picture of what Christ does for His people. There's also, though, this, this picture in Genesis of of us. Uh, there's ways we can identify with the narrative that we've read, specifically with Joseph's brothers. Uh, we see a bit of ourselves in them, Uh, Not that we have thrown our brother into a pit and sold him into slavery, but we are sinners nonetheless. In fact, some may think of Joseph's brothers and think, well, I'm I'm not that bad. And then Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, no, we really are. Uh, You may not have thrown your brother into a pit and sold him into slavery, but the Scripture says, Christ says, if you've called your brother a fool in your heart, that's condemnable to hell and Probably a lot of us in our heart and our minds have called a lot of people fools. Jesus, in saying that, is helping us to see not that there's no opportunity for anyone to ever be saved, but that we are far worse off than we think we are and that the sin of our heart is the issue and that sin has to be dealt with. And what we see in Joseph's brothers are, are a group of people who spend decades not dealing with their sin, running from their sin, and now God has brought their sin back in front of them so that they must deal with it. And I think that's where we can see ourselves. Because you and I, we struggle with sin, don't we? You and I come to times in our life when we realize we've got sin in our past that we've not dealt with. You and I, on any given day, at any given moment we'll find ourselves in sin and having to deal with how do we respond to sin? What do we do with this? And how can we be made right with a holy God when we still fall short so often? Well, I think that's what we'll see continuing to develop as we look to God's word and look to this story, specifically today as we look at Joseph testing his brother's Look at why he tests his brothers. Look at what comes from him testing his brothers, and then look at how does that apply to us. So we're going to read today uh, Genesis 44 verses one through thirty four. If you are able, at a reverence for God's word, if you would stand with me as I read this word for us. When we last left off in Genesis, uh, Joseph's brothers had returned, and they were having this feast together. They they still don't know that it's Joseph. And there's still a test to be had, and that's where we find ourselves today, beginning in verse 1. Speaking of Joseph, it says, Then he commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, The men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this." When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words, and they said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also be my Lord's servants. He said, Let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are in my Lord's servants. We... And he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself." My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take also this one from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant my father and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy is not with us, he will die And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brother, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my Father. If you would pray with me. Church, Lord God, we do ask that you would help us to once again understand this Word, see the truth of the Gospel in it, and Father, that you would help each of us this morning to see as these brothers ran from their sin, but eventually are confronted with it. Lord, are we running from sin? And if so, how do we need to deal with it? Pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, reading through these chapters in Genesis, is, it reminds me of uh, watching some type of television series in a way that just keeps ending with to be continued. E- each week, the the narrative that we read isn't the end of the story. The story keeps moving forward. And in fact, that's not just Genesis, that's the whole Bible. It is one story that tells the story of Jesus. And and each narrative, each chapter goes into the next, goes into the next, goes into the next. And so, to understand where we are today, you need to understand where we've come from. You need to understand what happened, for example, in the last chapter. Where we read about Joseph's brothers, you remember they... They initially went to Egypt. Again, they don't know it's Joseph, and he knows it's them. And so he, he puts this, this test before them, this way before him of making sure they're going to return and puts money in their sack. And, and they see this as some type of judgment from God because they know this isn't a good thing. They know they'll probably be accused of being thieves. And eventually they have to go back to Egypt because they're out of food. And in last chapter, we saw how when they went back, they went back expecting judgment and harsh treatment. Because before, when they went and they didn't have anything, they were treated harshly. They were accused of being spies. Now they're returning back with this money in their sacks that had been put there by Joseph, but they feel like it's going to indicate that they're thieves. And and when they went back to Egypt, they were expecting harsh treatment. And yet, when they went back, they received the exact opposite. If you remember, when they went back, Joseph had the steward prepare a great feast for them. And so you had this, this picture of Joseph at his table and you've got the Egyptians over here at their table and then you had Joseph's brothers feasting at this table and at this table as they're feasting, food would be taken from Joseph's table over to them. And the way that that narrative ended in chapter 43 was they were merry with him. They were eating, they were drinking, they were having a great time. So the question then becomes, well, if the goal here is that Joseph would be reconciled to his brothers, why doesn't that happen at the end of chapter 43? I mean, here they are, and he's tested them to an extent on their faithfulness, they have brought their younger brother back. He has longed to see his brother Benjamin. Here they are feasting, having a good time together. The Scripture says they're being married together with him. Why not at that point have Joseph stand up and say, listen, I'm your brother Joseph, and I'm okay, and God brought me here, and he kept me safe, and he's had a plan. Now go back and get our father and get everybody in our family and come on out here to Egypt. Why not then? And the answer comes to us in chapter 44 in what seems to be kind of an obscure test that he puts before his brother. And in it, the answer I believe that we see is Joseph doesn't reveal himself and reconcile with his brothers because he can't do it yet. Because sin hasn't been dealt with. You see, in our lives today, so often, we, we want to just reconcile, we want to get along, we want everybody to hold hands and say it's alright, but we don't want to deal with sin. And when we don't deal with sin, we can't really be reconciled. Remember that point, because you'll see it come up time and time again in our text today, and I believe you see it ultimately in the picture we have of the Gospel It's there in the first point I've put in your notes. Number one, in order to experience reconciliation, repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary. And Joseph, at this point in the story, he doesn't know if he's looking at repentant brothers or not. And so he's going to orchestrate this test for them to see whether or not they're repentant, and more specifically, whether there's fruit of repentance in their life. So we talk about repentance a lot. And I describe repentance often as the sense of you're, you're moving towards sin and you stop and you turn away from sin and you turn towards God. Repentance is not just saying we're sorry. Repentance is stopping in that sin, confessing that sin, turning from that sin, seeking to rid our life of that sin. There's a sense of desperation there in repentance. And the Scripture tells us that repentance should bear fruit. And so that's why when John the Baptist is there baptizing at the river and the Pharisees come up, he doesn't just say to them, okay, you need to repent. He says to people who saw themselves as repentant, he says you need to go bear fruit of repentance. Your repentance should make your life look different. And here, Joseph is going to orchestrate a test to see if there is genuine fruit of repentance in his brother's lives. And he's going to do it by replicating a situation they were in some 20 years or more ago. You see, it was at that point that you had Joseph, the the favored son, and yet one of the youngest, the favored one of the father. You had him coming to them, and them in their jealousy and in their rage putting him into slavery, selling him into slavery, sending him off as a slave. And now 20 years later, his father Jacob believes he's gone, and so you have another favored son, the youngest son, Benjamin, the the other son of his true love, Rachel. Certainly there are similar relationships that could be developed there between the brothers where you have this younger one favored and this younger one loved. Certainly that jealousy could still be there between the other brother's and this younger brother. And so what Joseph's going to do is he's going to orchestrate a test and a plan in which the younger brother Benjamin is going to be enslaved. And the brothers here, like they did before, will have the opportunity to stand up for their brother, to say something for their brother. And so Joseph will lay before them this test to see, have my brothers really changed? You see, he can't just... Be merry with them in that meal and say it's all okay because it's not all okay. He hasn't seen fruit of repentance yet. And so he's going to orchestrate this elaborate test to see if these brothers are truly repentant. And friend, this is very important for us. Because we live in a culture, not just in our world, but a culture within the church that again has what I mentioned last week, these little cliches And when it comes to forgiveness, their cliche is like, well, we we just need to forgive and forget. Well, what is that saying when you say that to someone? When you say to someone, I just wish you could forgive and forget, what you're saying with them is, I don't want to really deal with what I did. (laughs) I want you to just forget about it and I'll forget about it because we just need to forgive, don't we? And and there's a part of that that sounds very Christian. It sounds good. Well, yeah, we're, we're Christians. We need to forgive and not hold things against one another. But if we're not careful and we go with that philosophy, then then there's a part of that that's anti-the gospel. Because God doesn't look at us and just forgive and forget. God doesn't come to Adam and Eve in the garden and say, oh, look what you did. I'm just going to forgive you and forget about it. No, God brings them what God brings throughout the Scripture and in our lives. God brings consequence of sin. And God calls us to repent of sin so that we might then experience reconciliation. So then when we find ourselves saying things like, let's just agree to disagree, we realize, no, we need to think about that for a moment. Now certainly there are things in life we may not fully agree on, but if agree to disagree is applied to, let's, dis- let's not uh, try to agree on whether or not what I did was wrong or not, let's just agree that we're never going to agree on whether I'm wrong or not, and let's just move forward, then we're not really dealing with, sin if we just say to one another "Well, let's let's just all get along and we're saying that in the context of let's not deal with sin then we've got a problem and i believe we see that here in this narrative and we see it in our lives today and what we see is so often in the church when we go to another and we say listen there's there's sin here and, and in order for us to be reconciled we've got to deal with this sin we find that's a very uncomfortable place And for many of us, maybe that's a place we've never truly experienced. And so that's when the criticisms come out. Well, who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me I've done something wrong? And we start to think, well, gosh, who am I to judge? And maybe I shouldn't say anything. And then we never really experience biblical reconciliation. And then what we have, friends, in our church and churches throughout our world today is we have a big mess. We have sin that's never really dealt with we have this false sense of reconciliation where we're not really reconciled. And so then we develop all these little groups within the church where, well, as long as we keep this one on this committee and this one on this committee and make sure this one goes to this hour and this one goes to this hour, as long as these two aren't serving on the same committee and we, we, try to, we try to orchestrate things in such a way because people have never really dealt with sin, they've never really reconciled. And so then we're just trying to move these parts around. And the Gospel says there's a better way here. See, the Bible teaches us that we can experience genuine reconciliation, but we experience that through repentance and through turning from sin. I think one of the greatest pictures of it we see, one of the greatest examples of this point is found in the cross itself. You think about what happens on the cross. Where there you have Jesus on the cross being scorned and mocked and suffering for the sin of man where you've got these thieves, one of which is saying, he's Lord. The other saying, yeah, well, if you're really Lord, get me down and you down off this cross. And do you remember what it is Jesus says? He says, Father, forgive them. Now, when Jesus says to the Father, Father, forgive them, in that moment, is everyone immediately reconciled to God? They're not. If you follow through the Gospel accounts, what you find is after Jesus says, Father, forgive them. In Luke's Gospel, for example, you have this continuing narrative of them mocking Him and them scolding Him. There is not reconciliation there. You have Christ saying, Father, forgive them. And you have them treating Him harshly. Why? Because there's no repentance there at that point. And then you fast forward that to the book of Acts. Chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, you've got this scene at Pentecost where Peter is sharing the Gospel very clearly. And in sharing that, he speaks to these men. And he essentially speaks to them as those who crucified Jesus. And he looks to these men, likely some of the same men who were there mocking Jesus, casting lots for His clothing. And he says this to them. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Peter points the finger at them and says, No, listen, you have crucified our Lord. And then listen to how they respond. Acts 2.37 Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers... Who are you to judge us? (laughs) No. They say, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But think about this for a minute. You have at the cross Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, and yet they're not experiencing that forgiveness. They're not reconciled to God until what happens? Until they're at Pentecost, they are convicted of their sin, and they are broken over their sin, and they are repentant of their sin. And what does Peter say? Now, now you can experience the forgiveness that comes through Christ. And my fear for us, church, is that that, that we stop at the cross, and we just say, oh, forgive them, oh, forgive him, forgive her, when him or her aren't really repentant. And then we never have genuine reconciliation. My fear is that we are more like the end of Genesis 43, sitting at a table with those who have sinned and those who have offended, and rather, you know, whether it's out of, out of fear of what's going to happen, whatever the cause, rather than to just deal with that sin, we just throw our hands up there and say, "Oh, it's it's all okay. We can all get along." The gospel says, "No, no sin has to be dealt with, and sin has to be repented of." And so the question that certainly bears in our life is, are, are we repentant people? I mean, when, when you sin, when I sin, are, are we people who confess that sin? If we sin against a person, do you go to that person and say, I, I've sinned against you"? Do, you? do you ask that person's forgiveness? Do you go before a holy God and say, Father, yet again, I, I've sinned. And I'm going to turn from this. Or... Are we just people who are just sorry a lot? (laughs) Oh, well, I did it again. I'm just sorry. Well, you know, we all mess up, don't we? See, sometimes we just excuse sin and we just try to cover sin and not deal with sin rather than exposing it and saying this is sin and I need to turn from it, and I need to repent of it. And what we have, I believe, in Genesis 44, is Joseph looking at his brothers, and he knows their sin, and he doesn't know yet whether they've dealt with that sin. And yet, as we've seen, God is dealing with them, and God's going to deal with them, and He's going to do it through this test that Joseph puts before them. But the question is, are are they repentant? How, How do you lead someone to repentance? How does God bring us to a point of repentance? 2 there in your notes leads us to that conviction over sin is what leads us to repentance see i can tell you all day long and you can tell me all day long that that i need to repent that you need to repent of something but if you're not convicted that that thing is sin and i'm not convicted of that sin well there's not going to be a lot of repentance there (laughs) see what needs to happen first is Holy God needs to lay on our heart that this is wicked and evil and sin and break us and bring that conviction in our lives. And I believe that's what's been going on in Joseph's brother's lives, and I believe that's what's going to continue going on in this text, as this test is put before them. Joseph instructs his steward to, to put this cup in one of the brother's sacks, specifically Benjamin, the youngest brother, to 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 replay in a way these events that took place some twenty years before. And so now the brothers are are leaving and they are probably thinking, okay, this is this is good. Bad things didn't happen to us like we thought. We've got all of this food. We're going back and if we need more we can go back and we've got our brother Simeon now. We've got our brother Benjamin now and all is gonna be well. And then they see the the troops coming. That this entourage coming from where they've just left and it's the steward it's the the man in charge of joseph's house and he comes to them and immediately there's an accusation and immediately what do they do they they plead their innocence because they believe they are innocent and so he says to them one of y'all stolen the cup of our master how could you do that and they're so confident that they haven't done anything wrong that they say if you find it among any of us go ahead and kill that person I mean, they're just confident we didn't do this. you'd think they might want to pause and consider what's been going up to this point. (laughs) The money that keeps getting put back in the sacks, they didn't put there. Maybe there's going to be a cup there they didn't put there. But they're so confident that they haven't done anything wrong. That they make that bold statement, whoever you find it in their sack, you can kill them. And sure enough, they find it in Benjamin's sack. And you notice how they respond in verse 13. Then they tore their clothes and every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Now this may seem a little odd or awkward to us, this tearing of the clothes. But in a biblical context, this was a sign of grief. This is a sign of sorrow. This is what we saw, for example, in Reuben, if you remember when when the brothers first sell Joseph into slavery, and and Reuben's idea was, well, we'll put him in the pit, but then I'll come back later and I'll get him out of the pit, and he goes back later to get him, and yet then he finds he's gone, and he's just overwhelmed with grief, and he just rips his clothes, he tears his clothes. Now you have all the brothers doing this. Why? Because they're grieving, because something's changed in their heart, and so they go back to Joseph, and they start to plead with Joseph, and specifically, again, notice the spokesperson here is Judah we talked about this last week. Judah's a changed man. Judah's far different from the the great sin we saw in his life that's taken place before. Now he's the one stepping up for the brothers, speaking on account of the brothers. The one who's gone to his father and said, My life for Benjamin's life, if something happens to him, it's on me forever. Now something has happened to Benjamin. Now Judah is speaking up. And when he does, he, he falls before Joseph. And Joseph immediately accuses him. And he accuses his brothers. And then you notice here what Judah says to him. Verse 16. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Now you think about that statement for a second. Here, Judah's not specific to what it is that God has found guilt in them over, but, but I think the implication would be he's not saying to Joseph, we really stole the cup and we're guilty of stealing the cup and God's found us out. Because why? He's already pleaded his innocence. We already know from the text, nobody stole the cup. Joseph put the cup in Benjamin's sack. I think what Judah is speaking to here is something we've seen God orchestrating throughout this narrative. You remember back in Genesis 42, verse 21, as those brothers are there imprisoned, accused of being spies. They believe they're innocent. But what is it they say? In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They see this consequence in their life, this calamity in their life, as a direct result of the sin against Joseph. And then God continues to bring this conviction in their life. So when they're heading back the first time, and they find the money in their sacks, they say, Genesis 42, 28, what is this that God has done to us? That They see that God is doing something to remind them to deal with them on this sin. And so then when you have now Judah before Joseph saying, God has found the guilt of your servants. I think Judah is speaking directly to the real guilt that's there because of the sin that hasn't been dealt with. And he sees that God is bringing and has brought conviction in their lives. And what we see from that is repentance that comes. See, repentance comes when we're convicted. So the question for us then is, friend, for you, for me, are you convicted over sin in your life? Am I convicted over sin in my life? You see, it is very possible as a Christian to sin... And to get to a point in our sin where we continue to sin and we continue to sin and continue to sin where our sin just doesn't grieve us. Where we make so many excuses for us for it and there's so many people we surround ourselves who are involved in the same sin that we don't really even experience conviction over that sin anymore. If you're in a place, if I'm in a place where we're not daily convicted in some way of sin in our lives... That's a scary place to be. Because that doesn't mean that God has suddenly removed conviction over sin. That means that we have done something to remove ourselves, to pull ourselves away. That we've built up such a thick callous over our heart that we no longer feel convicted over sin. Now, God has a way of penetrating that callous and convicting us nonetheless. But if you're in a place, if I'm in a place where we're not experiencing that conviction... That's not a good place to be. And I believe that's the place we find Joseph's brothers who for 20 years now have yet to tell their father about their sin. For 20 years have gone by like life's okay and life's good. And it takes God bringing this great calamity and famine to get them to a point where they're now before this foreign ruler and they're beginning to say, you know what? Maybe we're not guilty of that cup, but we're guilty of something. And God is dealing with us in our guilt now. We can't outrun the consequence of our sin. They realize that, and we need to as well. We need to see that for we're in that place where we don't feel convicted, there's an answer for us. <laughs> see, what convicts me, what convicts you, what convicts the callous heart is the Word of God. And that's one of the many reasons we need to spend consistent time in it reading it and meditating on it, and praying through it, because God uses His Word to convict His people. And if you're one this morning who says, you know, I think I've got it all together, I think I'm pretty good, sure, I'm a sinner, but I don't really feel bad about much this morning, I I don't really think I'm doing anything wrong, I, I think I'm pretty good, I think I've kind of arrived, then you're probably not one who spends daily time in this Word. Because the more you and I read it, the more we walk away and go, man, I'm not where I thought I was. I got a long ways to go. And the more we should walk away from it going, man, the gospel is precious. God is so gracious. Because in all these things that are true about me and true in my sin, look what he has done for me and for you. We should be those who come to passages like in James 1 where James says be a be a doer of the Word, not just a hearer of the Word. And He warns us, don't be like that one who, who, who looks at the mirror and then walks away and forgets what He looks like. Now you think about that for a second. Most of us looked in a mirror this morning. We, we know that image we saw. We remember what we look like. But how odd would it be for me to stand before you this morning and say, I looked at the mirror today... And I've got to do something about this thick head of hair. I mean, I've got to get this thing thinned out or something. I can't even run a brush through it anymore. It's so thick. You would look at me and you would say, huh, you forgot what you look like, pastor. <laughs> We're not looking at the same person you thought you looked at. I mean, how foolish would it be to stand here and describe myself in a completely different way than I actually am? And yet God says to us, that's exactly what you and I do, friend, when we don't spend time in this Word. Maybe we hear it, maybe we receive it in our ears, but we don't do anything about it. And then we walk around and we look so different than the Word calls us to be. And we're not repenting of sin because we're not convicted over sin because we're not going to the Word to find out what is sin in our lives. And friends, we live in a world that's not going to convict us of anything. We live in a world that's going to tell us everything we do that sin is okay. And you deserve it, and I deserve it. And, and who are they? Who is that? Who is it? Who can tell you that's wrong? So we need to come to God's Word and through it realize, no, we are called to look to the Word, be convicted of sin, and then genuinely repent of sin. Again, I fear so often we don't really repent. We just say we're sorry. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. I won't do it again. Then the next day... I'm sorry I did it again, I won't do it again. Well, gosh, I'm trying harder. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And the Scripture says that repentance is more than saying I'm sorry. Repentance is turning from our sin. H- how do you know if you've turned from sin? How do you know if I have? How do we know if people have turned from sin? We see it here in the last point in your notes, the last part of the text. Because repentance leads us to brokenness. God uses broken people for His kingdom purposes. You see, we, we, we see genuine repentance bears fruit, and a great fruit of repentance is brokenness. And I believe what you see here in Judah between verses 18 and 34, it is a broken, repentant Judah. A very different Judah than the one we saw back at the pit 20 years before saying, we've got to profit somehow from this. A very different Judah than the one you saw then leave his father's household, go to a pagan land, do all these pagan things, unspeakable things. And now look at him. He comes to Joseph, he graciously pleads with him, he asks permission of him before he even will speak. He asks him not to judge him or be angry with him. He just, he just pleads with him to listen. He, he walks through what we've already looked at, how, how he's told his father that they needed to bring Benjamin back, but if they bring him back, he knows what it's going to do to his father if they show back up without him. His concern suddenly doesn't seem to be for himself at all, not even for his other brothers. It's, it's for his brother Benjamin. It's for his father. And so notice what you see in Judah, what you don't see in Judah. Notice Judah doesn't stand there and demand his rights before Joseph. (laughs) Judah doesn't say, well listen up Joseph, do you know who my father is? Do you know who I am? Do you want a war with Israel? Because we got a history of wiping out a lot more people than us because God's on our side. They don't see him do that. You don't see him standing there pleading his innocence, demanding his rights. Well, we didn't do anything wrong, and we know we didn't do anything wrong, so you better just let us go, because nobody did anything here, and you put that in our sack. You don't have Judah Judah sitting here saying, well, you know what, Joseph, this just isn't fair. No, rather, what you have is a broken Judah who rather than plead his case, is just pleading for mercy. And in a broken way before Joseph, is just saying, listen, I'll take his place. T- take me instead. Just let me stay and be your servant and send him back with my brothers. You have a radically different Judah. You, you have, I believe, a broken Judah. And now we have a Judah that God's going to use. And God's already using. So you start out in Genesis and you look at Judah at the pit and you look at Judah and all that craziness that he goes through and you think, wait a second, doesn't something in the Bible say Jesus is the Lion of Judah? (laughs) How how do you get from Judah to Jesus? You read Matthew and you see that Matthew doesn't trace Jesus' lineage through Joseph, this promised one this picture of jesus we looked at he traces it through judah how's that happen it happens because god uses broken people and what we see in genesis 44 is god has broken judah and now god will radically use judah and that's important for us to remember friend when we stand there and we demand our rights when we stand there in our pride and we plead our innocence, when we stand there and say, well, this is their fault, it reminds us God doesn't need proud people. God needs broken people. And God uses broken people. But it's hard to be broken. Because everything within us fights against it. And everything within us demands our rights. And everything within us says, well, that's not fair. And then we come to God's Word and we see pictures like this that remind us fair ended in the garden <laughs> and God will go to great lengths to break us of our sin and there is great joy to be had for those who will be broken of that sin and He will use them greatly for His kingdom purposes. I have one person that came to mind as I was reading this passage. Sinful person, but nonetheless one God used that was was broken Bill Bright, he started the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ in 1951. He was a, he was a wealthy businessman at that point, and and basically just laid broken before God as God overwhelmed him with the need to share the gospel with college students. And so he sold everything he had. He started this ministry, and and through it, the ministry would have its ups and downs. And Sandy and I, as you know, served with the ministry of Campus Crusade, and a number of years ago, before Doctor Bright passed away, I was listening to his son give a, a testimony concerning his father. And he was talking about during a specific portion of his ministry how, how critical people had been of him and of Campus Crusade and, and how his father just refused to respond to these criticisms. He refused to demand his rights. And how he was pleading with his father, Father, stand up for yourself. <laughs> Go back at them. You're in the right here and they're in the wrong. Expose them. Speak up to them. Defend yourself. And he says, you know, my father looked at me and he said, son, one day I'm going to stand before God. And I would rather have God look at me and say, Bill, why were you so gullible? than Bill, why were you so critical? And I remember hearing that statement, and it just cut me to the heart. I don't tend to see myself as a gullible person. I'm more on the critical end. And often I'm not a broken person. I'm on the proud end. And And I'm reminded that that God uses the Bill Brights of this world a lot more than he uses the proud people. In fact, he used that man for your church. There are students from this church who've been involved in the ministry of Campus Crusade. I became a Christian through the ministry of Campus Crusade. God has a way of doing something through broken people. And so... I think the call from us today from God's word would be, are are we repentant people? Is there fruit of repentance in our life? Is there conviction? Are we responding to it? And ultimately, are you and I, are we broken people? And if we're not, that's not good. And to pray that God would convict us and overwhelm us of sin. Stop spending so much of your time and my time identifying the sin in other people's lives and stop and consider the sin that's there in your life. The Scripture says you can't even see clearly to deal with theirs until you deal with yours. And just to spend time today praying, Lord, search my heart. You know my heart. God, when you convict me of sin, would you lead me to repentance over sin? And maybe it's something that you or I did 20 years ago like Joseph's brother's. Or maybe it's something you did two hours ago. But whatever it is, to to turn from it, to repent of it, to walk in faith, to trust in God, to ask Him to break us and then to use us as He does. Church, I think if you pray that and I pray that and we earnestly seek that from the Lord, and there's no telling what He will do through us. And so we've got a choice. We can go on business as usual, Or we can stop and consider whether or not the almighty God of the universe is saying something to us today about sin in your life and my life. And whether we're willing to really deal with it today, perhaps for the first time. That's the choice before you. It's a choice before me. And I pray that we would make a response to that choice based on the truth of the gospel. If you would pray that with me. Father God, we do come to you and Lord, I know that there's no sermon I can preach, there's no prayer I can pray that's going to convict myself or anyone in this room of sin in their life. But Lord, I know that your spirit will bring conviction. I know your word brings conviction. And so Lord, I pray for this word we've looked at today. I pray that it would bring conviction on all of us. And I pray, God, in this moment that we wouldn't run from that conviction. We wouldn't hide from it. Lord, I pray for everyone here, including myself. Lord, that you would expose our hearts before us. Lord, that we would lay bare before you. That you would do a work on us. And Lord, if there's anything there that we have run from and not dealt with, maybe a sin that is obvious to the rest of the world, and we've been blind to it in our own lives. Lord, would you bring conviction? Lord, would you not allow us to rest until we have dealt with that and repented of that? Lord, would you break us? And Lord, I trust as you do that you would do with us what you've done with so many, Lord, that you would use us in our brokenness for your kingdom purposes. Lord, you don't need anybody in this room this morning, but we desperately need you. So Lord, help us to cry out to you, to call out to you. Hear us as we call, Lord. Change our hearts. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.